0: i step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one leap for mankind. So, I don't know if you guys want to get into the science now, but we can definitely do it, or we can talk politics. It doesn't matter to me. So, if, well, if we I'm talk, actually, about, I definitely say that my views are my own and not <laughs> the official
1: views of any of the institutions I'm affiliated with. Well, I was going to actually, off of that, ask you, how many there where it's not Trump and Biden? And how do we get to that one or one of them?
0: How how do we get to essentially a system where we're not bound to Democrats and Republicans?
1: Well, that would be great. But I meant like in a different universe, like how many different oh. universes are
0: there? Oh. How many different... You, you get out there for a minute, so I had to superimpose yeah. what you said. Um, so how many universes are there, right? That's the question? Yeah.
1: Or how many different, like, you know, branched-off versions of this are there? Whatever this is. Yeah,
0: so it, it depends on what interpretation of quantum mechanics you... Want to use now you know we discussed beforehand one of the things we wanted to talk about tonight was the many worlds interpretation right
1: yeah
0: that's what i was talking so, about so many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics how many universes the the short answer to that one is now uh let me let's start from the beginning because I don't think that we, we can really make sense of the answer without understanding what many worlds interpretation says, right? So the, Who many, was the
1: guy that proposed this? on So,
0: yeah, no, no, you're good. His name was Hugh Everett, and he proposed this in 1957, and it was his Ph.D. thesis at Princeton. And his Ph.D. advisor was John Wheeler. Uh, have either of you guys seen um, A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. So and John Nash is in at Princeton, and he's vying for the fellowship after graduation. They mentioned Wheeler Labs, and that's where that's mm. the position he ends up getting. So Wheeler Labs was the lab run by John Wheeler, who, by all accounts, is probably the most prolific um, PhD giving a professor in the history of physics. His his chain of PhD students that were under his tutelage was astounding. It's just a it's a list a mile long of physicists who've gone on to win prizes and present, you know, novel theories and win Nobels. I mean his list of PhD students is, is immense. And Everett was 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 his student and Everett's PhD thesis was pretty much ignored by everybody when he gave it, right? So, to to talk about what Everett did, uh, it, it helps to understand a little bit about what classical quantum mechanics says. And classical quantum mechanics says, we cannot know the actual outcome of an experiment until we actually do it. And what we mean by that is, Quantum mechanics governs the tiny world, right? The world of atoms, protons, electrons, subatomic particles, things like that. And it's due to the nature of those systems compared to what we would consider macroscopic systems like you and I, right? The smallness of those systems is what is where quantum mechanics, the difference between what goes on in that realm and our realm, is really uh defined. Um and so quantum mechanics says to be let, a realm. Say, do what?
1: You consider what we are on right now, like everything that we see. It's a realm, right? Yeah. Like we are in a we're in like a realm.
0: Yes. And and Everett's gotcha. Everett's interpretation of quantum mechanics would even take that to the extreme and say there are multiple realms.
1: I that right. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. And yeah.
0: And so quantum mechanics says, suppose suppose I take a particle, right? And I confine it in some box and it cannot escape that box, right? But I don't know anything about the particle other than I've put it in that box. Quantum mechanics says that if I try to make some measurement with relation to that particle, like try to measure its energy, then That energy that I try to measure can only obtain specific discrete values. That's where the word comes. Because
1: you're doing it, right?
0: Well, it's because the energy levels are all quantized. So there's only specific energies that are available to these quantum systems. Mm. So that's where this quantum term comes from, is the fact that these energy levels can only take specific values. So if I measure the particle's energy, I know what the answers ought to be, or, or, or I know the pool from what my answers ought to be, right? But they will yeah. only be a set of specific values. I can't get just some random value. It will only be a set of specific values, but I don't know what energy I'm going to measure. I don't know the quote unquote state of the system, right? I don't know what state the particle is in. It could be in a really energetic state, Or it could be in a measly, not so energetic state. I don't know until I do the measurement. Classical quantum mechanics says the particle, before I measure the energy, is actually in all of the states that it could be in. It could be in the lowest energy state where it's not moving around very much or it could be in the highest energy state where it's bouncing around like crazy. Classical quantum mechanics says it's actually doing both of those and everything in between Mm -hmm. until we actually measure it. Yeah. Until you measure it. It it quote unquote collapses the wave function. Right now. So I'm glad that uh, I get to share my screen because I have a visual for you all.
1: So this is, this is what's happening. (laughs) Hey, okay. I gotta take a picture of this. So, Got so this is the,
0: This is the simplest system. This is like the first thing you learn in quantum mechanics, okay? This is called the particle in a box, right? This is called the particle in a box. And quantum systems are defined by what we call the wave function. So your wave function is right here, right? This uh it's the Greek letter psi, or some people pronounce it shy. So each unique wave function has its own particular set of energies. So if I put my particle in the box, right, I know that it can only take on this kind of energy. So N is the level or the energy level that it's in. And then pi is, of course, you know, your mathematical constant. H-bar is a quantum mechanical number. And this is actually the number that is like the most interesting in quantum mechanics. It's the thing that quantizes all of the energies. And uh, then it's divided by two times the mass of the particle. And the size of the box is this width a, right? So a is a physical length, right? So I build some tiny box of length a the particle cannot escape once I get in it, right? That's the assumption of this this experiment. And so I know that if I measure the energy of a particle, it's going to take one of these values. It's going to take, if I plug in one, I'm gonna get some energy. If I plug in two, I'm gonna get some energy. If I plug in three, I'm gonna get some energy and so on. These are the actual wave functions that the particle can have. Right? These are the actual wave functions that the particle can have. And um, so these are plotted, these are the first three. And as you can see, these are just sine waves. These are just sine waves. And they're dependent on this number for n. So if n equals one, this is the simplest wave function. And we would say that the particle is in the ground state. If n equals two, the particle is in the first excited state. If n equals three, the particle is in the second excited state, and so on. If I plot this function, if I plot that function inside my box, I get the blue line. It's just a simple half of a sine curve, right? If I plot the second one, then I get the green where I get a full sine curve. If I plot the third one, then I get one and a half sine curves. So, and then it just continues from there. The fourth one would be two full sine curves and so on. So the wave function, the way that we interpret the wave function is that the square of the wave function relates to the probability of where the particle is. So that's what this box down here means, right? So if I square my blue wave function here, I essentially get a higher blue hump. If I square the green sine wave, then I just get two humps. And if I square the uh, red sine wave, then I get three humps, right? So what classical quantum mechanics says is if I know nothing else, I just dump my particle into this box It can't escape, and it starts to move around, and it has energy and all that kind of stuff. What classical quantum mechanics says is that the particle, before I measure it, is in all of the states simultaneously. But then when I make a specific measurement, that forces the particle down into one of these and then once it's collapsed that's what we call collapsing the wave function so the the initial state of the system is all of these added up together and then the act of trying to measure the energy forces it to choose a specific value of n and then it will be in one specific state so from so the measurement
1: the, is called collapsing the wave function or it choosing which state to be yeah. In is yeah
0: Yeah. So, so when I actually physically make the measurement is when the particle is forced to pick where its energy is going to be.
1: And that, I mean, that specifically is what's called collapsing the wave function. Okay.
0: So that that's what collapses the wave function. And so then the wave function goes from being all of the possible states together down into one specific state, like, you know, the N equals two state. So here, then, okay, so let's say that it does choose the N equals two state, right? At that point, then the probability distribution would be the green one, but to make it a little less busy, you would have something that looked like this, right? So the probability the probability density would look something like that, which means, and, and what that means is, now that the wave function has chosen a specific state that also restricts where the particle is most likely to be inside the well so the humps here now refer to probabilities of position so the most likely position if i now try to measure where it is are going to be at these two spots right here it will not be in the middle of the well it can't be it can't be at either of the edges but anywhere else it can be in those places, but it will most likely be at the peaks of the, this this function, right? Now, here's where Everett, and, and, and this is related to the uh, Schrodinger's cat, by the way. That sounds yeah. very familiar. Yeah, so the Schrodinger's cat, you know, says the cat is dead or alive.
1: It's right. both at the same time until you open and the And so box. If
0: you can think of that as imagining that we don't yeah. have you know, an infinite number of ends, but we only have two of them, right? Yeah. So imagine that this would be the cat is dead and this, this would be the cat is alive if we restrict our system to two states, right? So then when you open up the box, you make a measurement that forces the cat to then either be dead or alive, yeah. right? It forces into you know this state or this state, whichever one. Um, now, so here's what Everett says. Here's what Hugh Everett says in, in his PhD thesis. Hugh Everett says, what happened to the other states? Right? So initially the particle
1: hmm. was
0: in the superposition of all of these states. And in this case, since I didn't know anything a priori beforehand, it really could have been in any state. And N can go up to infinity by the way. So my particle is, is in this superposition of an infinite number of states. What happened to the rest of them? right? So when I make my energy measurement and I force my particle to pick, there was no necessary reason that it had to pick the n equals 2 state. Right? It just did. Yeah. So what happened to the other possibilities? So whatever it says is it did pick the other possibilities in new realms. So each time you make a quantum measurement, this is what Hugh Everett says in in layman's terms, each time you make a quantum measurement, all possible outcomes occur, but in different realms, different worlds parallel with ours
1: but so, this go ahead yeah so let me say but this is, is just like a realm yeah
0: so the picture i like to think of it is imagine right we have our realm is like these ropes right our realm is like these ropes yeah. and all of these ropes are contained in a container called our realm, right? These ropes represent all of the possibilities of a quantum system. And then when we make a measurement, it forces our system into one specific new realm. So I got a question for you.
1: Yeah. The realm that we are on, is (laughs) that why we get the readings that we get? like if if there is a another realm and they are running these experiments and their constant is say like in like into is it choosing into for example just because we are on this specific realm um no i i, I, okay. I
0: don't
1: i don't think so so I, uh... what causes it to choose what it is
0: What causes it to choose what it is, right? So so think of it this way, right? So these ropes represent a a quantum system, right? And you can have, say, n equals 1, n equals 2, and n equals 3 as your outcomes. And we, in our realm, make a measurement and say we measure n equals 1. And this is the new realm that we're in. In another realm, an identical copy of you. Yeah. Measures N equals two. And in another realm, identical copy to you.
1: Measures three. three.
0: So now all of these are new realms in and of themselves. New worlds in and of themselves. Identical copies of you. Yes. That have now formed, as a result of these measurements, identical copies of the universe. Really. So what causes our realm, right, to pick n equals one, or or yeah. our realm to be n equals two, or, or our realm to be n equals three? Luck of the draw.
1: Hmm.
0: Luck of the draw. Now, one natural question that goes along with all this, right, is where are all these other realms? Where are all these other worlds? Where are all these other timelines? You wouldn't perceive them, right? So they would be in a – realm is about the best word to use, right? We, we don't like to yeah. use Interdimensional. We don't like to use interdimensional because then that kind of brings into the idea of like string theory and 26 dimensions and, you know, time travel and sci-fi and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I, I hesitate to say that they're in different dimensions, um, but they would be in realms whose timelines are parallel with ours, but simply with an Uh, separate outcome for that particular experiment but at the moment that those universes split right at at the moment these these timelines split apart um, at that moment the universes are identical right so you're making a measurement you observe a quantum system to do something and you're in the laboratory say you're making this measurement in the new universe you would still be in that laboratory making the same measurement. Yeah. would just observe a different outcome. Right. Um, and, and this is, this is baffling to, to everybody. Right. <laughs> and, and, and this is partially why he was ignored when, when he first proposed it because it's ludicrous, right? It's absolutely ludicrous. Why in the world would the universe work this way?
1: Um, guess, but it depends who you ask, man, that seems pretty normal to me. <laughs> it really does like this. That makes sense.
0: Well, it and, and, and makes
1: complete sense.
0: This is the, this is the draw that it has, right? So for, for decades, cause, cause quantum mechanics was formalized, you know, in the 1920s, it was, it was started in the, you know, 1900s, uh, formalized in the 1920s after a couple of decades of work. And this is one of the more bizarre and interesting ideas that has come out of quantum mechanics really since its inception, right? Um, from, from the moment that it was more or less formalized in the mid-20s, um, not much in terms of advancement or theoretical addition has has happened that, you know, would occur in elementary textbooks and so forth. Um, but this is one of the more novel ideas and the draw that it has for a lot of people, um, particularly physicists is physicists. We love symmetry, right? If if, 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 if we can look at nature and there are things that seem to reflect things that we already know, we love this, right? We love reflection, we love symmetry, we love completeness. And this answers the completeness problem, right? Where did all those other possibilities go? Well, they all happened, they just didn't happen all in your universe. They didn't all happen in your realm. New realms were created in which each possible outcome did occur um now this is a very simplistic picture right this particle in a box idea this is like like i said this is the the first example in a legitimate quantum mechanics class that you learn this is the simplest system that there is it's it's actually useful and and we use it to model uh some actual physical systems but it's the most elementary system that there is right um so, of course, you know, when you actually do an, a, a real measurement, you're going to be measuring something a little bit more sophisticated than something trapped in a box, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the principle still holds that no matter what your total set of possibilities are, the attraction definitely is, well, what if all possible outcomes did happen, right? And, and that's a pleasant thought in the sense of completeness, right? We want... All of the p- potential we, because we want to ask why, why didn't I get n equals three? Why didn't I get n equals one? Why did I get n? You four?
1: did, just not here. You
0: did, you just. <laughs> not, and, and, and here's the really bizarre thing. A, a, a true a true Everredian, right? We, we call ourselves Everredians. Um, a true Everredian would say. That you did get all of the uh, outcomes because it's still you in all of the other realms. Yeah. It's you, it's your essence, it's your being, it's your whatever you want to use to describe you as you, um, just in different realms. Now, yeah, here's 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 the thing, right? So Quantum measurements are made by the billions and trillions all the time. It doesn't just take a researcher in a lab, right, to, to observe a quantum system. Um, these things are happen, happening naturally all the time, right? These things are happening naturally all the time uh, on their own. So if, it is, if this is true, then we've got bazillions and bazillions and bazillions of worlds even right now, splintering off from our timeline, you know, and and creating
1: self-replication.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So in that sense, because we have so many of these possibilities, it is fair to say to a point that if something could happen, then it has happened or will happen, right? And on the one hand, that's a really, Fantastic idea because that means that I'm the quarterback for the Denver Broncos in one of these, you know, at least one of these things. Um,
1: You've won so many Super Bowls. I
0: won all of the Super Bowls. <laughs> Literally, I have won all of yeah. the Super Bowls. Yeah,
1: we've, uh, we all have. We've mm-hmm. all done everything.
0: We've all done everything. Um, but on the other hand, that also means we've all done everything,
1: right? So Wait, let means- me ask you a question. Really quick, so yeah. kind of related to this. Do you believe in, I mean, do you believe in God and the afterlife and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, and that's so, really so interesting. So, is, like, it makes sense. <laughs> like, that's why this makes sense, because, like, I you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in the afterlife. I, I Like, this makes total sense. Like, this, this is not super weird.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I think that there are... And, and not just Christians, but other religious sects too. Yeah. that would kind of rail against this at first, right? Because this is kind of like bizarre and kind of like taking control away from God and all this other kind of stuff. And, and my response to that is I was raised Christian. My dad is a, is a Nazarene pastor. Um, my response to that is God can do what he wants, right? Like if, 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 if God is big enough, and 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 whatnot then who's to say that he's not big enough to be over billions and billions and billions of universes being created all the time I mean so you know in in that sense I don't I don't have a problem with this in terms of you know my personal religious views um, I don't find any conflict there Um
1: there's a crazy quote and i think it's by a physicist he says the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist but at the bottom of the glass god is waiting for you
0: yeah i've heard that quote before too yeah. uh and, and and it's it's interesting right cuz if 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 you want to talk about this for just a moment you know a lot and i i've, I've even gotten this myself right the the question of how are you a Christian, or how do you believe in God, or how do you do any of this, um, and be a scientist, right? Like, some people are just, you know,
1: you don't very hand in hand.
0: And, and, and the, the answer is that in the United States, roughly 40% uh, at any given time of practicing scientists and science educators uh, do practice some sort of religious faith whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hindu, um, you know, at at all of the institutions that I've uh, uh, taken classes from, you know, we have professors from all over the world. Um, We have professors from here in America. I've had Christian professors. I've had professors who were Muslims. I've had professors who were Buddhists. Um, And I've had atheistic professors. But you know, the the really good professors keep all that out of the physics classroom, right? And if you want to talk to them about it on their own time, they'll be more than happy to talk to you about it. Um, and I have. I've, I've talked to, to a lot of my professors about these kinds of things. And the, the legitimate truth is that most practicing scientists who have some sort of religious faith, the vast majority of them are not conflicted at all, right? um, maybe they they've worked through some conflict to, to, you know, overcome maybe some teachings that they were told they were supposed to have conflict. Um, but once you, you know, uh, work through that yourself, most, most everybody who, who's part of that 40% really doesn't see any, you know, issue between their, their faith that they practice and, and the science that, uh, um they practice so yeah for me personally i don't have any problem you know reconciling uh the walking quantum mechanics with my you know religious background so
1: yeah this is that's really cool i don't understand why like there's that whole there's i feel like there's a certain group of people that are so like oh science and religion don't go together at all like you know and it's just not true it's just no, really just it's, not it's true really not.
0: It's, it's really not you 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 have people who with without to go too much into things you know but but you have the people who um for lack of a better term really are indoctrinated right mm. and and, and the probably
1: people, on both sides
0: yeah, and and the people who are indoctrinated would tell me that I'm indoctrinated to not believe the way they do, right so on, on on the extreme sides right you, you've got both extremes here you've got on the ultra conservative religious side the you know young earth creation movement the Flat Earth movement and things like that and then on the ultra atheistic side you've got people like Richard Dawkins who, don't describe themselves as atheists, but they describe themselves specifically as anti-theists. Yeah. So it, it's not even that they he's don't. He's so
1: angry. He is very angry. <laughs> I don't know why, man, because he's, so, like, so smart. He's so smart. He's very successful, but that is an angry man. Like, he really is. He's really got a bone to pick. He
0: really is. And, and, and I'll tell you, did you ever read his book, The God Delusion?
1: No. Okay,
0: don't um even even atheists thought it was garbage right like when when he came out with that people were like man this is the best you got right like it, it, it just wasn't you, man. It, it wasn't good and i i will say that if you listen to now he's part of what they call the four horsemen right um him christopher hitchens who's now passed uh daniel dennett and sam harris right so daniel dennett harris are philosophers. Christopher Hitchin was well, I, a philosopher. I listen
1: to Harris's podcast sometimes.
0: And and then uh, Richard Dawkins on the science side. And I actually find, if you listen to Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, I think that they present their arguments better. Yeah. I, I don't always necessarily agree with their conclusions. Yeah. But I think because they're logicians, because they're philosophers, they can
1: frame their arguments in a more persuasive manner
0: I think and, it's just
1: interesting to hear like everybody's viewpoint on stuff like especially with stuff like this like there has to be there needs to be like conversation about this kind of stuff
0: yeah and I think yeah there, there really does and it, it's it's all in how it's done right mm-hmm. because yeah. if you if you if you look at the the debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham back in 2014 did you ever watch that no, wait, man, we, I don't really I like our, right? So if you watch that debate, it's painful. It is literally painful to watch. And it's not because, yeah. you know, I disagree with one of the sides on it. It's because neither side could actually agree on what science was in the first place. So here they are trying to debate, you know, science versus young earth creationism and all these other kinds of things. But they never actually agreed at a base level what either side was talking about. So it's just talking past each other for two hours, right? That's all it was. And um, Dude, it was so
1: it's just like so it's just like the presidential debate.
0: I, I, that's exactly where I was getting ready to go. Was like it was respectful. They did let each other talk without interrupting each other but they just couldn't even agree on basic terminology to even get a productive conversation
1: started. Did you listen to Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson? I haven't heard that one. And, and the, they, there, there were two. The first one was them just trying to... It was like an hour plus... of what truth was. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and then like, on the... Question. And then on the second one, it was like, we're just gonna skip that.
0: <laughs> yeah. What is what is truth? That's not a deep question.
1: Yeah, well, it was it was pretty bad. I gotta say. And I enjoy listening to both of those people. But yeah. that first one was pretty bad.
0: So I mean. I'll I'll tell you one of the biggest problems that I had with the God delusion. And this is, this is one of them that, you know, a lot of people pointed out to Richard when, when he produced the book, he makes the statement somewhere in the book. It's within the first hundred pages. I have it highlighted, but it, I, I couldn't tell you exactly where it is, but he makes the statement that um, miracles cannot happen because miracles by definition break natural law. And to me that's a nonsensical statement. Miracles cannot happen because they break natural law. No physicist or chemist worth their salt's going to tell you that we already know all of the natural law.
1: Right? Right? We don't know anything.
0: So, so my premise would be, if there's a God, who has created this universe, there's no reason why He couldn't, in you know, endow the universe with natural law. But there's also no reason that we should have uncovered it all by now. Right,
1: we're, we're all, we've not been around that
0: long. We haven't been around that long. <laughs> we haven't been studying this that long. You know, and and so the, anything. I, the the thought experiment that I came up with to combat this, right, and this will actually kind of tie into the, the simulation theory when we start talking about that. Um, imagine a guy who's built a bunch of little tiny robots, right? Guy in a lab built a bunch of tiny robots, and these robots can crawl. But they were given enough rudimentary artificial intelligence that they know when their battery is about to die and they can crawl back to their power source and plug themselves in. It's like a Roomba. Yeah. It's a primitive Roomba, right? So these little robots, they can crawl around the room and and they can explore their space, you know, like uh, um, Will Ferrell, you know, explore the space. Um, But imagine... Right? An earthquake happens and a bookcase falls inside the room. And one of these little tiny robots gets separated from the rest and he can't crawl over because he doesn't have suction cups. He just has these little tiny legs. He can't crawl over the bookcase and get back to his power source. Right? So he's just on one side of this room, on one side of this bookcase, just crawling around, cannot get anywhere useful but then the guy who built the robots comes into the room and he picks the robot up and he carries the robot over the bookcase and sets the robot down by all accounts is what happened, what the robot experienced being picked up and moved through the third dimension, the vertical dimension. He'd only crawled around the ground before he'd never gone upward. So to him, that little robot, the laws that it would know that I can crawl on flat surfaces. That's the only laws it would have known.
1: So, like its understanding of reality is totally not complete because it hasn't conceived of up.
0: Exactly. And so to it, the the person who built built it, Picking it up and carrying it over the bookcase and setting it down on the other side so it could walk to its power source would be, by definition, a miracle.
1: Yeah, and that breaks natural law.
0: And that breaks the robot's natural law, but not the law of the person who built it.
1: So not the law of the universe.
0: But not the law of the universe. So my my counter-argument to Richard Dawkins would be if we don't know all the natural law that there is then there's no reason to say that miracles have to break natural law because there could be more natural law that we don't know that we haven't discovered. Yet.
1: We haven't our understanding of reality is so incomplete.
0: It, exactly. Our understanding of reality is incomplete. Exactly. So you know when, and the book is filled with, with arguments that are of that level, that are that easily dis, you know uh, yeah. disassembled. So I I do enjoy reading what he has to say and I enjoy listening to him because he is articulate and and he, you know, is passionate about what he says. And I'm I'm definitely not the type that encourages people to live in echo chambers, right? Yeah, no, you gotta get it. So when, when people talk about on Facebook, you know, well, this person angered me uh, with their political views, so I defriended them, or I angered somebody else and they defriended me. And I'm like, What's the That's use? Insane. Right? Like, if, if we all only listened to people who thought exactly like us, we would just be in an echo chamber and there would be no growth, right? There'd be You'd no be personal. Cave, man. We'd be in, Yeah, we'd be go back to being cavemen and we'd just split into two factions and we'd fight each other. Yeah. And, and, and so living in an echo chamber to me is pretty dangerous,
1: right? Definitely if I only,
0: dangerous. If I only surround myself with people who think like me, Um, And I don't listen to anybody's, you know, anybody else's viewpoints on anything, then I'm not going to be challenged in my thinking, I'm not going to consider new things that I'm not going to think of myself, I'm not going to learn about things that would otherwise potentially enrich my life. So, um, you know, I do enjoy reading what Richard says. And I like to, you know, try and, and consider what he says critically. But at the end of the day, I do disagree with a lot of his conclusions.
1: So, I'd like to think he and yeah, yeah. kind of no, I could understand. You should write him a letter <laughs> or email him.
0: Uh, there, there's a good chance he would respond too. You should. There, there, there is a good chance he would respond. Uh, maybe this coming summer, when I get some time, I'll probably do that.
1: Yeah, you should. So, That'd be cool. That,
0: you, you know what should happen. If I do this, you know I'm letting you guys know.
1: I want you just that'd make awesome.
0: this episode.
1: Yeah. <laughs> with Richard Dawkins.
0: Conversation with Gary T. and Richard Dawkins.
1: Yeah. That'd that would be hilarious. He, though, yeah. That would be funny.
0: Richard, we need you for this podcast, man.
1: We need you to, yeah, come on here and debate Gary. <laughs> I'll take notes.
0: Right, you know, I mean, it's worth a shot. The worst he can do is say no, you know,
1: that's right. The worst, but really, is you, should, know. you should just send him like what you have to say. He might like, be cool because, like you said, you know, you have to get a conversation going, like, you have to listen to other people,
0: yeah, definitely. So, uh any other questions about many worlds? I mean, I know we, we kind of hit on that, but it was. do you feel like you have a true sense of what quantum mechanics says yet?
1: Well, like I said, none of that really, like, that makes sense. Um, but So the reason I asked you about, you know, your religious beliefs... As this is a realm, um, do you think all of these different versions of ourselves, like you said, they all have a piece of us? Like maybe this is our soul existing in different realities, uh, different you know timelines, whatever, however you want to say it. Um, and upon death, all of those different experiences make up our next like version of ourselves, like our next being. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like okay, so like uh, as far as the robot and it being picked up, like upon death, are we going to like a different realm? You know what I mean? Like up, uh, like we are. The laws of the universe are changing, and we are changing along with the laws of the universe.
0: Ooh, now that's a good question.
1: Is there like anything of, like that in that in that field? Like, is anybody doing anything on that?
0: There, there are some people that are exploring the, you know, intersection of consciousness and um, exploring, you know, like near-death experiences and things like that to try and get a sense of of certain things. But I, I don't know how many actual, you know, physicists are doing it as opposed to sociologists or, Mm. um, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists who really are interested in, you know, the chemistry of the brain um, during those those last moments and things like that. I don't know how much a physicist...
1: Well, I don't even specifically mean just, like, death, but, like, these different versions of ourselves, like you said, you know, we've all won all of the super bowls like we've all in different realms we've all done everything the good the bad and that makes up who we are so upon like is there like an upwards realm like is that a thing like you know like we've got N one and two and three Like we've got, is there N one b in one c or anything like that you know what i mean yeah or that's or like like adjacent like diagonal from like is that <laughs> is that like how it works
0: um so the the, the mathematical jargon is orthogonal right so, so what yeah. that means is that all all axes have to be perpendicular to each other which gets really funky you know trying to visualize what that looks like after three dimensions but um i i think i understand where you're going you know because because i think what your question is asking is for us is there anything akin to what the robot sensed as up as a new thing
1: yes right
0: is there a new because thing
1: like our understanding of the nature of reality is different it's incomplete just like the robot dog the robot dog could not conceive going up being picked up right. Right. so there has to be like something else right like if if
0: if my argument that i would you know pose to richard that who says that we know everything there is to know about natural law and that there may be things that can happen that we haven't perceived yet then i would argue that probably yes there would be and up that we haven't experienced yeah. yet, or that we haven't perceived yet, um, because we may not be capable in our current state to do so. But there right? will
1: also be a down. Right? There could could be. Who knows? Because... Right. Yeah. Um, like in neg- negative negative N one A or whatever.
0: <laughs> who knows? That's um, a i'm gonna have to think on that because that makes sense yeah it it does um it certainly does
1: and i don't know that just uh, it makes sense man and a lot like i know that sounds like you know is it really like you know
0: right right um the the crazy thing about quantum mechanics, right? The crazy thing about quantum mechanics is once you accept the bizarre as possible, then it's really not hard to extend that to say, well, then the, there's not a lot that's off the table, <laughs> yeah, right?
1: That's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> once, once you accept that the bizarre is possible, there's not a whole lot that's not possible. So, um i'm i'm never one to say that something is impossible unless we know it contradicts a firm natural law that we know for sure uh or i, I really shouldn't say no for sure i i should say probably <laughs> confident that could never be broken and really yeah. in, in 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 physics there's really only one natural law that we know of that we put more stock in than anything well, and that's is. the second law of thermodynamics which talks about the universe moving from order to disorder, right? That for us, for, for a physicist, when you talk about natural law, that is the one that like we know of nothing that can violate the second law of thermodynamics. So like decay Um, and stuff like that. Right. Entropy, the whole, the whole concept of moving from order to disorder. Now on that topic, right? Uh, a lot of people like to use the second law of thermodynamics as an argument against evolution, right? Because if the world started in this hot conglomerate of rock and water and mantle and all that stuff, how did complex chemistry come out of that simplicity and disorganization if the universe wants to move from organization to disorganization? right and what what they're forgetting is the technical application of the second law says in any given process the entropy of the entire universe has to increase so the disorder of the universe increases but locally if i have high quality energy that is being input into a system then that particular system can go from disorganized to organized. But the entire process, when you take into account the thing that produced that energy as well, when you take that system as a whole into account, the entropy still does go from uh, organized to disorganized.
1: Just as so over,
0: right? Right. So when you actually look at the energy from the sun, right, the energy from the sun yeah. is what we would call high-quality energy. It's energy that we can actually do something with. We can convert into power. We can convert into, you know, all these other different things that we can utilize, right? So the the sun has high-quality energy. And putting that energy into the earth does allow, whether or not we know how the chemistry worked and all of that that other kind of stuff, just from a pure thermodynamic standpoint, the energy from the sun is high-quality enough that it would be sufficient to allow something like evolution to be driven, right? But when you take the entropy of the sun as well into account, because the sun is constantly radiating this energy out, it is itself moving toward a disordered state. So when you take the amount of disorder that the sun is gaining and the amount of order that the earth is gaining, the sun's disorder still wins. So, you're still moving the entire system toward disorder and the entropy is um, um, salvaged, I guess, for lack of a better term. You can still show that the total entropy of the system increases, thus not violating the second law of thermodynamics. So, you know, that, that's one point that a lot of creationists like to make against evolution. They say, well, it just violates the second law. And no, it really doesn't because that assumes the earth is a localized system and the earth is definitely not a localized system because it's receiving the bulk of its energy from a separate thing. So when you take that separate thing into account as well, then you recover the um, truth of the, the second law of thermodynamics. So that's the law that as, as a scientist, we say that's the thing, right? When we talk about laws, of course, there's Newton's laws. Newton's universal law of gravitation, Kepler's laws, and so on. The second law is the thing that we say there's no exception. Yeah. There's no exception to this. You can make exception to Newton's laws um, if you're in a specific uh, uh, frame. So you know, Newton says things like all objects at rest will stay at rest, and an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted on by a force. His second law says if I have a force, it causes the motion to change, and it says how that motion will change. And then the third law says for every force, there's an equal and opposite force. And if if I'm on a flat surface and I'm not moving, then Newton's laws are great. If I'm on a train car that's moving, but I'm flat on a flat plane, I'm not going up and down hills, and I'm not slowing down and speeding up and I'm going straight, again, Newton's laws are great. But imagine playing football inside a train car, and then <laughs> that train car goes around a curve, right? What's going to happen if you're a quarterback and you throw a ball, then all of a sudden the train car curves? Your pass isn't going to take the trajectory toward your receiver that you had originally thrown it with, right? Yeah. So in that frame, once the train starts to curve, you're, in, you're no longer in a frame where Newton's laws are valid. So we know that we can violate Newton's laws. Um, we know that we can violate, uh, you know, other laws where the, the way that they were formulated had a specific regime, right? Um, mm. We know we can violate Newton's universal law of gravitation. It doesn't work when you get down to, you know, things like black holes where the gravity, the surface gravity is really extreme. It doesn't work there. So um, there are ways that you can break certain natural laws because they're not entirely encompassing, right? They have their own specific regime they work in. But the second law, we know of no system that can break the second law as a whole. So that is the fundamental rule in all of science, essentially, is the second law of thermodynamics.
1: Hmm. So, you mentioned simulation theory earlier. hmm This is a simulation? Do I believe that we're in a simulation?
0: Yeah. This one's hard. Crap. This one's <laughs> hard. I, I will say this. I will say this. Because you guys specifically asked for both simulation theory and, and many worlds tonight. I can see how both make sense, mm. but I don't know how they're both compatible, right? I, I don't know how they're both compatible, and 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 I'll tell you why. I'll 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 explain why here shortly. But first, are we in a simulation, right? Are we in a simulation? Do you want to you do you want to do a little experiment here?
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So can you see my screen where I've got this? Uh, what is your name going on right yeah. here? All right, so what's your name?
1: Do you want my real name or yeah, like yeah, a native name? You, yeah, name? what's
0: your name? Any name you want to give
1: me. Mm, i will give you my D&D character's name. Thrawn, T-H-R-A-W-N.
0: Thrawn, all right. So yeah. it wants to know what it can do for you. It'll either clean your house, it'll wash your car, or it'll help you run errands. What do you want... What do you want to what do you want done here?
1: Clean the house.
0: You want to clean the house. So we're gonna enter a one in here. Oh man. Too bad. Hmm. Now, here's my question. This is important. This is this is a little tiny computer program that I wrote in five minutes, right? So yeah. do, you want to respond, do you want to see the responses for the other two? Sure, so, yeah, sure. So we've got the responses for the other two. We know our name is Thrawn. And let's say you want it to wash your car. Well, okay. Why would it want to wash your car, you schmuck? <laughs> All right? Um, All right, so let's run it again, and we'll see what happens if we uh, let it run our groceries. We want it to run some errands, and it can't do any errand running, you medieval primate. And so now let me ask you, if you on the phone, you call a a call center, say. And you heard somebody at the other end say, what is your name? And you say, my name is Nick, my name is Brian, my name is Gary, whatever. And it says, hi Gary, what can I do for you? And then it gives you a list of options. If the voice itself doesn't have that computerized tone like it's a pre-recorded voice from a person who's reading from a script right uh, until you run into a point where you know you're working with a machine you don't know that you're working with a machine right yeah so up until the point where you know the 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 um robot might hang up on you or transfer you to an actual operator or something of that nature. You don't know that you're interacting with the machine. Mm -hmm. Now you just had a conversation with computer code and we do this all the time, right? Anytime you call, you know, to get maintenance on a warranty on your car, you're almost always, you know, greeted with a, you know, computer that says, you know, welcome to Toyota, how can I direct your call, press one for warranty issues, press two for sales, press three, for, you know, you're always going to interact with your all the time when you initially call, you know, like one of those things. And those entities are intelligent enough to take what your responses are, usually, and do something useful with them transfer you to the proper department get you to an yeah. operator or whatever so i'm going to ask you is that conscious is this little mm. computer program that i wrote conscious
1: i would say no
0: i would say no as well right yeah, i would say I no i would say no i would say no as well but this is a very rudimentary piece of code and you know those computers that that you you answer the phone when you call a helpline or something like that
1: well the very, code also doesn't know that it's code right think about what you just said i know that's what i'm saying like i that makes sense too the code doesn't know yeah that, that it's, code. It's, it's just code. running a function it's, it's just running a function yeah so yeah, now I get it. Like I understand that one too. Like
0: you 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 you've you've really stumbled upon something there, right? Um, because that being the case, code doesn't know that it's code. It just yeah. functions. Yeah. That's one of the base arguments for the fact that we could be in a simulation.
1: Yeah, and like sometimes there are bugs in codes.
0: Sometimes there are bugs <laughs> in codes right a lot (laughs) there are bugs in codes yeah um i actually did this one earlier um so the 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 main argument for the idea that we could be in a simulation is this right i wrote this computer program because we have the sophistication to do it Right. 20 years ago, you still could have written it pretty much this easily, but you would have had to have a specific program on a machine like an Apple something or other with a big floppy disk. And, you know, it would have it would have been very technical to write this, you know, primitive what we would now call primitive language uh, 20 years ago, something like Fortran or something like that. And so I'll, I'll let you see what the code looks like. So Python is great, right? Python is great because it's literally you know, saying, okay, print the phrase, hi, what's your name, right? And then you can tell it to whatever I give you, it'll say then, hello, plus that, right? And yeah. then, it, hey, what can I do for you? Here's my options. And then I'm gonna print either a one, a two or a three, and based on if I print a one, two, or three, or something else, mm. then it'll give me a response, right? So the code itself is pretty rudimentary, and it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, why did I do this? Because I can, right? Yeah. Why did we invent computers? Because we can. We as a civilization do things because we can right? Yeah. So well, let me let me let me actually, let me bring up my my paint here again, and I'll, I'll create a new new thing. Because here, here's here's the logic that a lot of people use, right? So imagine, imagine, there is a an original race, we'll call these the, the original people, right? This, these original so, people... And one. Kind of. <laughs> so, these original people <laughs> are the people who build the computers the first time. Right? These are the yeah. first generation of computer builders. They then get the sophistication to write complex enough computer programs to say they are running a simulation. How many times, even in our world right now would you say that people have run simulations where there are characters in those simulations that you as a person can have some level of interaction with namely video games
1: yeah
0: right so we're at the point now where depending on the type of game that you buy you can you know interact with an artificial intelligent um, character that's driven by an AI engine that can have something like a you know actual conversation with you. If you do first-person shooter games, these characters are programmed to you know highly sophisticated movements, predict your movements so that it's harder for you to kill them and easier for them to kill you at the higher levels, um, and all sorts of other things that give them a sense of what we would call humans right it there are Mm. pieces of things that we have our senses of motion our intuition and things like that specific parts of those that these programs have copied that then give you the sense that you're interacting with something more than just a computer code right Right. When when i play madden right when i play madden the computer is able to adjust defenses to my play calling, right? Yeah. If it notices I play a specific play on a down and distance, it can adjust to call a blitz or, you know, call a cover three instead of a cover two and disguise those at the line so that I don't see it. And then I throw an interception. The computers are sophisticated enough to almost feel like you're interacting with someone real on the other end, right? So even even if we are the original computer species, Even if we are the original computer species, just with the sophistication that we have got in our computer games, I would already argue that there's a generation below us. And these would be our computer games, right? These would be the people in our computer games. But how many computer games involve simulated people?
1: It be an infinite number, right? It'd
0: be... I mean, you would have to collect all of the video games ever. And yeah. then count them up, separate them into the things that have humanoid people in them versus your original, like, Pong or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, just... Uh, separate time. them out into these humans. And then you also have to count up the total instances where people ran those games. Right? And at that point... You don't have just a next generation of computer simulations. You have a bazillion. Yeah. Bazillions of actual simulations. Bazillions. Right? Bazillions of these things. So you have one civilization that can build computers, but then when they actually start simulating things, they start simulating them at exponential levels, right? Bazillions and bazillions and bazillions and bazillions. So we would actually have far more simulated people than there are in the original population. Far more simulated people. Now, here's here's the thing. If the original population gets to the point where their computing power is big enough, their simulations... Could then run simulations. So imagine, have you did it's you so ever play the Sims? Cool. Yeah. So this really is not all that hard to believe.
1: Right? So you, yeah, play, no, no.
0: You, you play the Sims and imagine in the Sim game, a kid, when they're growing up, grabs a computer and then can play the Sims.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? So then you have a simulation running a simulation. And all of the characters in that second-tier Sims game wouldn't know they're characters in the Sims game just like my computer code doesn't know that it's code. It's just functioning, right? And so then you have not just bazillions of new people. You have... I'm going to use my pen so that my writing is a little bit clearer than just with my mouse. You have bazillions to the bazillionth power.
1: Bazillion, bazillions.
0: You would have a bazillion, bazillions. And that tree would just keep going down until you reach the point where the computing sophistication of the bottom tier cannot produce a new new civilization, a new simulation. And so the fact that you're already going to have exponentially more people just even in this first tier and even more in the second tier means that if there is some superior race out there that has written computer code, the chances are overwhelming that we're actually in this group of people as opposed to part of the original race. That's the main argument that people make when they say that we likely are in a simulation because there's just so many more people in these universes that were created by other beings than there are here. So is it possible that we're in a simulation? Yeah, sure it is. Here's where I say that simulation theory is not compatible with, Many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics because every instant of a quantum event that would, you know, bring in a new timeline or a new realm would require that much more computing power at the top level, right? It would require that much more computing power here. I don't see how all of these systems generating new. Even digital realms, uh, how you would have enough computing power at the top to sustain that for very long. Now, is it possible that they've found some way to make themselves nearly infinite with their computing power? I don't know, but it doesn't doesn't they seem-
1: did somewhere
0: the, so <laughs>
1: yeah. so,
0: you know, but it's it's really not a bad argument, right? It, just from pure statistics.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, think about that's one that all would, that that makes. Yeah. You know, so. You know, that's a good one.
0: Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um,
1: and I kind of feel like, in a way, it's similar. Like, even you know, you're showing that there's a difference between this and many worlds. They they are kind of similar.
0: They, they have some similarities. Yeah. They have some similarities because if you want to think of it, you know, kind of in terms of what I was saying before now, you could think of, you know, okay, so you have one race and they create one simulation and then they create another simulation and then they create another simulation. So now yeah. you have new timelines Yeah. and it's possible for them if they have enough computing power that they'll run simulations Yeah. and, you know, so in that sense, the tree could look pretty similar, right? The tree could yeah. look pretty similar.
1: It's like there're two like major like two sports leagues or like teams <laughs> in like one city. You know what I mean? Like they're but like one's baseball and like one's football. like but they're both like you know wash, yeah, Denver new, but it's like the same city but, like, different, you know, different games.
0: Yeah. Do you like football or do you like baseball, right? Do you yeah. want to see touchdowns or do you want to see home runs? Yeah. Uh, they're, they're very similar, though. They – they. I think that it could be argued that they would have a lot of the same common outcomes. Yeah. I could argue that. I think you could argue that very well. Um, yeah. So, you know – um, my personal thought, are we in a simulation? <sighs> um, I'll, I'll I say, like
1: deep breath.
0: I'll say this, right. So from a scientific point, and, and this is why some people don't like this because some people say that this really isn't a scientific question, that it really is a, you know, a philosophical question. Um, because there's no way to prove that we're not right? There, there's no test that anybody has thought of yet that could conclusively prove that we're not in a simulation. Right? uh uh-huh. That's, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's some people who come up with some clever ways to try and detect that we possibly could be, right? So, Anytime, if, if you come back over here to, you know, my Python code, I didn't use anything other than integers, right? I just used, you know, the one, the two, the three, the four, um, or really anything not one, two, and three. Um, but if you actually did real calculations, right, in a computer, um, computers can only handle so many decimal points per number, Right. And so each point in your grid of a simulation can only hold so much information before you start running into rounding errors, right? Before you start running into the granulity or the finiteness of whatever the, the um, simulation will hold. So some people have surmised, what if we looked at, you know, Um, lots and lots of the same thing, but things that are hard for us to measure. So one person proposed looking at the energies of cosmic rays. So cosmic rays are just rays that, uh, hit the earth from outer space. They're generated in stars. They fly through space. They come in from all these different directions and they can hit our atmosphere. They can interact with our atmosphere, um, Sometimes they can make it all the way down to the ground. Sometimes they, you know, get stopped in the atmosphere, so on and so forth. And somebody had the thought, what if we measured the energies of these cosmic rays, right? What if we measured the energies and we actually found a weird preference for their energies instead of just measuring a continuous spectrum, would that weird preference of energies be indication that of that finite rounding of of the finiteness of the grid that the you know superior species was using to to map out our universe so in that sense because there is a physical test that has been proposed A lot of people actually do agree that this still falls enough into the scientific realm where physicists should, you know, wrestle with this stuff and not just philosophers. Now, there are some physicists who find it balderdash, right? There are some physicists who just say, this is ridiculous. But one of of the most vocal opponents to this, her name is Lisa Randall, and she's a theoretical physicist at Harvard. And she she asks the question: We as humans are intensely interested in us, right? We want to study us. Why would we write computer code, or why would a advanced civilization that had, had evolved beyond us want to then write computer code about
1: us, right? Like, what would that do? My well, response wait. To that- You could, just because you could, right? You could, just
0: because you could. And I would argue, we're already doing this kind of thing. Yeah. We're already doing this kind of thing where we're writing computer code to try and simulate simple organisms to see how they evolve. Right? So it's not that far-fetched to look at a future civilization and say even if they really aren't human anymore, maybe there's some new thing, some new species that they might still write simulations about us to study us. Just yeah. the same way that we're writing computer simulations about, you know, a uh, simple organisms. Um, and, and I've got a video here if my computer will go fast enough. So, you know, some researchers are doing this kind of thing where they're writing computer code to try and look at how simple creatures evolve, right? What happens if we write evolutionary algorithms into simple creatures that can either just swim, crawl, walk, or whatever? And then over time, what happens? And I don't know if we'll spend the whole time watching this video, but it is intriguing that um, you know we're doing these very things.
1: So is this just to be in their like coded environment, like a self-replicating kind of thing?
0: Right. So these are the results um, of all of the generations before them that got to the point where they could swim or could walk and things like that. And one of the more interesting things that they do is they eventually give some of these things tasks. So, uh, for example, example they'll have two, two of these robots fight over this green cube and whoever's the closest after their encounter quote-unquote wins and they actually start to fight in some cases hmm. so one dude like shoves the other one away and he's like no man it's my cube come on now He's like, nope, that's my cube, man.
1: And are the is the does the losing one learn from like their like mistake to yeah, change?
0: They can. They sure can. Yeah. They sure
1: can. So yeah, that
0: makes sense. So you know, when we're talking about whether or not a future or more high tech civilization would want to study us and, and the opponents say, well, we're not interesting to them why would we do that i would argue you know um cubic beings in a computer simulation really aren't interesting to us because we even a child would be able to beat these robots at the game of securing the cube but we still write them to better understand we write these programs and study these things to better understand a, how evolution works in the first place, and B, to understand specific environmental pressures that can then, you know, put um, or or help achieve specific outcomes, right? So I would I would argue that there still is room for even an advanced civilization who may be far beyond us. Um, I would still argue that there is reason that they might want to simulate us.
1: And yeah, well, uh... that,
0: What if we're some 15-year-old's video game, the yeah. same way that some people play Red Dead Revolver or World of Warcraft, you know? They don't do it for the science. They don't do it for the curiosity. They do it to pass the time. They do it yeah. for fun, you know? So in that context, I think there's a lot of reasons why you could argue that maybe somebody did computer code an entire universe. If they had the computing power to do it.
1: Yeah. Who knows? Like I mean? that's that's one of those that you know totally makes that's a good point. Like it's a good argument.
0: It's it's an interesting argument for sure. Here's here's where I if we are legitimate simulations, if we are legitimate computer code and we don't know it i will give props to whoever was able to initially code emotions because when i asked you earlier would we say that that you know computer at the other end of the phone are they conscious we both said "Mm, probably not right i'm not a philosopher so i'm not going to go into you know what philosophers define consciousness as but i would i would think that, that that computer would not meet the the basic metrics of consciousness right but one of the basic things about consciousness that philosophers would would use the ability to think on your own to make you know intuitive leaps and B, the ability to feel and express emotion. You know, we, we typically think of, a you know, going back to Red Dead Revolver, right? So you walk into a saloon, imagine you're playing Red Dead Revolver. You walk into a saloon and you just shoot somebody playing cards, right? We would say that the person that was shot in the simulation, in the game, has no feeling it's just a computer character, you know, there really is nothing morally it's wrong. Code. It's just code. There's nothing morally wrong with walking into a computerized bar and shooting a computerized program in a game and going on about your day and getting a drink from the bar and pretending like nothing happened. And people who play first shooter person games all the time, right? Would would argue the exact same thing. There's nothing wrong with shooting pe- people or things in a first-person shooter game. That is the objective of the game, is to shoot things. We would say that it's okay because those computer programs don't have feeling. We have no moral obligation to them because they're not conscious. But when you start to ask what is consciousness and is something conscious as a rule, those rules start to get a little fuzzy because you know, it's kind of like the question of what is life? When does life happen? You know, a lot of people say, well, life happens at conception, but even then exactly when that occurs, the exact instant that that occurs, where do you define that as, right? Because a a sperm meeting an egg is still a process, right? It, It doesn't happen instantly. So exactly where in that process are you claiming that something is alive, uh, a baby, that wasn't a baby before? Where exactly is that line? And so, you know, I, I would argue that the ability to feel emotion and express emotion is something unique that we have that computer codes, computer characters, computer games, video games, don't have that we do. But can I conclusively prove, can I conclusively but, prove that that person in Red Dead Revolver, in their own way, in their own realm, doesn't have emotion?
1: I well, can't. what if, but at the same time, though, like, you know, you said, is civilization sufficiently advanced technologically would be able to make something that uh, is able to make bazillions more of it? So if we were that, that second bazillions, we would be coding these third bazillions of these people in these computer games and stuff like that. And that's just our that's just get to a sufficiently technological level so that we could code other ones that are able to code. Yes. Know. And yeah.
0: And as soon as we get to the point where artificial intelligence, has essentially the same cognitive functions that a human does uh that'll really be the point at which computer science meets physics meets philosophy right yeah get to the point and and i think we're going to get there and i think we're going to get there sooner than later uh i did
1: too people terrifying it
0: it, there's some ethical questions right there's a Lot of ethical questions that surround the entire uh, artificial intelligence field. The the truly advanced artificial intelligence. I should I should be very careful because AI is used at a number of different levels. And so when some people would say artificial intelligence, they're just referring to a sophisticated algorithm. Other people, when they say artificial intelligence, they literally mean the thing that sci-fi writers you know envisioned, where robots. It's got were. It. Skynet, uh, mm-hmm. The Matrix, um, you know, Westworld, um, all of those kinds of, you know, that type of AI. So it's that type of AI when we really re- did you ever watch Westworld?
1: Oh, yeah. I do so, not watch the new season, so don't spoil the new season, I, but I, I love the first two. The
0: first season. I've only seen the first season, but the 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 part of the show that that made me go wow right it, i think it was even in the first episode when ed harris's character was it ed harris's character who was no it wasn't ed Harris's.
1: ed, uh, harris's, ed harris was man in black
0: whose character was it hannibal's it might have been when he when he first goes to the resort to get inserted into the program.
1: And, oh, the young version of himself.
0: Yeah. And he is escorted in by that beautiful
1: woman, right? Elon's ex-wife. Or and, wife. yeah, ex-wife.
0: And he asks her if she's a computer or not, right? Yeah. And she says, Would it make a difference? Yeah. Right, and and that's when my mind went. Right, not so yeah,
1: Think about that a lot. Every time you know, with that show.
0: We're gonna get to that point
1: yeah.
0: where we could interact with computers and not to those. the extent that we may not even know, we may not realize. You know, and and that is a. That's a thought.
1: <laughs> well. Think about like when computer simulations get sufficiently, you know, what that we create artificial intelligence gets sufficiently technologically advanced to start making its own religions exactly. and stuff like that. Exactly.
0: And 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 the, the the truly frightening thing about that for me is not so much that it will believe it, it won't believe its own religion. It'll convince other people that its religion is true and build,
1: you know, convince coins. other code.
0: Yeah. So that's that's the truly frightening thing to me is you know, yeah. If, if you have a true Westworld type thing where we don't know who's a computer and who's not, you could have a truly advanced artificial intelligence develop a new religion, build a cult get millions of followers and I mean, cause you know, there's, there's two ways to take over the world, right? There's two ways to gain world domination, politics and religion, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's really hard to get people true. to fight wars over basic things because we usually want to work things out and we don't want to risk dying. But as soon as you tell somebody you know what those people over there? God is telling us to take their land. We need to go take their land because God said so. Then you'll get people fighting with you. No, you know, no hold barred. So, if if you have a you know race of superior intelligent AI, it could be very easy for them to build a you know large standing army without without too much effort, which is
1: pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, but they would probably learn that religion, you know, can be used in that way pretty quickly. Exactly
0: exactly. I mean you look at the
1: crusades, right? I mean yeah. two biggest
0: religions in the world at the time and they kind of just collided and did it take much effort to convince people to go and fight for the Holy Land? No. <laughs> Not on either side.
1: No. Uh, so no, it did not. Hmm. God yeah, wants you. So maybe life. it is a simulation.
0: Who knows? Um uh, so is it possible? Yeah, man. It's possible.
1: And like my respect- sir, man, that's another weird one. And it's so similar. It's so like in weird ways too. Like it's mm-hmm. it's similar in weird ways.
0: Mhm. It is. What else you guys got?
1: I actually wanted to talk to you about the microbes on Venus and just recently the bodies of water on Mars because we both kind of we actually talked about both of those on the last one. Like yeah, the possibilities we, of those.
0: Yeah, we up real quick. Um so the the Venus discovery um a few weeks ago some some folks found uh an a chemical compound called phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Now as good scientists do um nobody is claiming that we found life.
1: Yeah. Microbes, right?
0: Nobody's nobody's claiming that we've actually found microbes themselves. But Uh the reason phosphine is so tantalizing is phosphine is a byproduct of microbes, right? Mm. It's a byproduct
1: of life.
0: And that's... What
1: exactly is phosphine? Uh, I I mean, like, what's its
0: yeah um if i remember right it's phosphorus and hydrogen i'll bring up the yeah so it's one uh let me blow up my screen here um so one phosphorus atom and three hydrogen atoms so ph3 and um so as as this article and this article is from um aol.com but it's it is a legit it's a it's a reliable article and so one of the best ways to make phosphine is that it's commonly produced by organic life forms but outside of that as far as we know it's rather difficult to Mm. make on rocky planets now venus is a rocky planet it's almost pure rock right um Phosphine can be manufactured through natural processes like volcanic activity and whatnot, but there's two problems. Number one, that volcanic activity that Mars ha- or that Venus has right now is not sufficient to uh, produce the amount that we see in the atmosphere. And number two, hmm. Venus's atmosphere is So, so hospitable, it is, uh, or inhospitable. It is absolutely terrible. (laughs) It's one of the worst places in the universe you could be. The amount of sulfuric acid in the atmosphere should disintegrate most of this phosphine as soon as it gets into the atmosphere. So the question is, where's this Mm -hmm. phosphine coming from? Right. That's why it's tantalizing. What if there are microbes at just the right layers in the atmosphere that aren't being harmed by that dangerous sulfuric acid and these microbes. Did we
1: talk about the possibility of cloud cities here or is that
0: Like We we mentioned that like right at the end of the last episode. And that's actually one of the types of um, things that actually this article proposes, the author of this article proposes, um, to actually we will continue to look at these results from ground-based observatories, but to get a true sense of just how much phosphine there may be in the atmosphere, we really do need to go to Venus. We need to send probes to Venus.
1: Yeah,
0: And, and he's arguing that, um, we actually need, um, to send not just a probe to orbit Venus and gather, you know, radar data from the atmosphere, but actually send probes down to basically take scoops of atmosphere in and try and collect the phosphine directly and get a sense of its concentrations that way. Um, and so, one of the ways to do that um, is going to be. Um, send um let's
1: see where do we go he
0: mentions it somewhere
1: yeah I see they're actually talking about yeah
0: so and- um the, the the da vinci plus uh, if so right now the veritas and the da vinci plus missions are on nasa's board for funding and likely one of them will get funded um and if the, if it's the Da Vinci Plus, then he wants it to actually plunge through the atmosphere, um, sampling um, different layers as it goes down, and try and detect that phosphine. I would like to see if we could get a um, reusable mission that could you know dip down to the atmosphere and then come back and yeah. dip down to the atmosphere, come back, dip down, come back.
1: It- Get different from different like spots. yeah
0: Cause if you if you just do a one way trip down and then you get down to the surface, um, that's usually a one-way trip to Venus. Just the, the the atmosphere and the the pressure and so on are so terrible that if you actually intend on landing something on the surface, it usually means you're not gonna try and take off again. Like it's a one way trip. Um, so I would I would like to see if we can if it's if it's engineeringly feasible to get a probe that could, you know make several trips down in the atmosphere come back out go back down come back out different spots sample different depths and whatnot. Um, but however it's done, it's going to have to be to get a complete picture, right? It's going to have to be done by both ground-based observing here and. Um, um, sending probes to Venus itself. So before anybody claims that we've definitely found life, this is going to be a multi-year thing, right? Before um, we conclusively come to any sort of consensus. And as he, as the author of this article says, you know, up here, um, you know, so there's two possibilities, right? Either there's some sort of life, Probably microbial in the clouds, or there's some unexplained and unexpected chemistry that's taking place. We don't know a ton about phosphine. There's um, not a lot of research that's been done on it before, other Is than. Is phosphine used for anything? I, I'm not a chemist, man. I That's a really good question. Um, I haven't looked into that. So I, I, I don't want to say one way or the other and and be an idiot. Um, so, but I mean, it's definitely something I can look into and, you know, email you guys or send you a link to something that I find yeah, or something like awesome. that. Um, but from my understanding, it's a relatively um, not well-studied compound. So, you know, the fact that we don't know a ton about it, doesn't bode well for life because that means there really could be there. The chances are that there's yeah. is chemistry that we don't know, but
1: it's there. Yeah. Right. It's there. So Didn't let's so. let's go take a peek. Man. I think that we should explore. I mean, every planet.
0: Yeah. You're,
1: you're, you're space. Well, especially here, like you said, that. That's right. Send me. I'll go right. check it out. Jump me down in that atmosphere. I'll come up with some phosphine for you. We'll check it out. Yeah, man. Well, they say, you know, dress for the job that you want, not the one exactly. they have.
0: Exactly. That's phenomenal.
1: So what do you think about this stuff on Mars, man? Is this basically Arrakis? Is like, much, is that what we're going to find out, that Mars is really Arrakis? Uh, from Dune? You got all the spices
0: yeah. on there? Uh, well, it's
1: good. I, I audience think, of water under yeah. the surface just like I arrakis
0: think, i think minus the spice yeah
1: it, it will be arrakis uh um, what why what if there is spice what if there are giant worms that live under the ground of mars if there are ph-
0: phenomenally giant worms on mars living under the ground i will be ecstatic well
1: uh, i mean we've said that life if it's on mars would be present underground and then the- yep, yep it would be they- so, yeah, I mean, I mean we, know,
0: we know for sure. We know for sure that Mars does go through, um, you know, seasons like we have here. And we know that it, it does get warm enough at times underneath the surface where whatever water is there can be liquid.
1: Um, Doesn't one of the poles... Does it, it melt or am I totally wrong about that? So the, from, from what I understand at the poles, a lot of
0: um, the, the stuff at the poles is actually dry ice. Um, so, yeah. you know, okay. people, to go to. Um, but uh, even it melts and recollects, right? Yeah. Just like the ice at our poles do uh, each season. Um, but we know for sure. That there is water on Mars, we're reasonably sure that the announcement about those lakes that it found underneath um some of the southern hemisphere seems to be legitimate. Um and if that's the case, then those are not small bodies of water, right? We're talking
1: no, stuff yeah like, uh,
0: comparable at, at minimum to something like, you know, at least one of our great lakes. Uh and so when you have a, a body of water that size.
1: Man, it's tantalizing. It's Dune, man. Like it's it's Arrakis. It's, it's... Mars is Arrakis. <laughs> I would
0: be ecstatic. Uh, I'm I'm totally of the the ilk that you know what I really believe that if the circumstances are right, given enough time, life will probably develop. Um, yeah, there are some biologists who will disagree with me on that, but. Um, there are some who would agree, but there are some biologists who would disagree. But uh, scientists, as a community, are are nearly split on that issue. But when fifty percent of scientists say something is possible, you know, that's a, that's good enough for me to say. You know, what maybe there's something there. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. especially especially given what we know Mars history was. Right. We're still learning a lot. We still we still don't know everything, but we do know enough to say that. At one time, it likely had a lot of water on its surface. It may have even been green. Right. There may have been vegetation on the surface. There may have been, you know, whatnot. So given that and the fact that anywhere you find liquid water here on Earth, you find microbes. We know there's briny, salty water on Mars right now. So if there's briny, salty water on Mars right now, there would have been briny, salty water on Mars several million years ago, oh, yeah. and get enough sunlight, and whatever processes cause life you know, to arise here on Earth, who's to say it didn't there? And then the planet just kind of geologically died and all of the microbial life with it, at least on the surface, But who knows what's going on underneath, man? Who knows what's going on underneath? I say
1: we dig. I say we dig, you know. Yeah. Uh, NASA, please send me to Mars.
0: Man, they're just sending you all over the place. They're going to send you to Venus. I'll check them
1: out, man. I'll check it out for them. (laughs) I'll I'll take that phosphine. That phosphine will get us to Mars. And then on Mars, I'll just control the spies.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. You design a rocket that, you know, can use regular traditional fuel, but then can also burn sulfuric acid so that when you're going through the atmosphere of Venus, you're scooping up your fuel as you go.
1: Yeah.
0: And launch yourself so Venus, recharge, recharge your, your engines, man. And yeah. then you just shoot yourself over to Mars. That's and the And you plan. just dig down and you see what we find and,
1: and report back, right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to gather my fuel for the way back. That's my backup engine. My backup engine is a phosphine. It runs off phosphine.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, though. It's, it, might, it might be possible. It might be possible because if if electrolysis would work... If electrolysis would work, right, you could do pretty much the same thing with the phosphorus and the hydrogen that people do when they do electrolysis with water. And, you know, you're basically separating the oxygen from the hydrogen, and then you collect the hydrogen to burn in your hydrogen uh, fuel cells. Uh, You could have a hydrogen-powered engine. And potentially use the phosphine to do it. See,
1: there we go. So I got this planned out in what? NASA hired me. I did this in like two minutes.
0: (laughs) Now watch. Somebody from NASA is actually going to watch this and they're going to be like, "Yeah, you all are idiots."
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you guys are so stupid.
0: (laughs) Here's all of the reasons why this wouldn't work.
1: No, this is really, like, this is really cool stuff because you and I did talk about also, like, we are both pretty optimistic about space travel. Like, I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than people think. And it's going to be stuff like this that gets us to to make that leap, to take that step, to Absolutely. check it out, like you said.
0: Absolutely.
1: Dude, I, I think, what, next 40, 50 years, we have, like, a colony on Mars or something? Way less time than that, but it's like a functional one. I could see well, it. Yeah, I could.
0: I think it'll definitely happen in our lifetimes. I
1: do too. I think no it'll doubt,
0: happen in our lifetimes, um, especially you know. And Elon Musk is one of those guys that you know. For a lot of people, you got to take the good with the bad. But um, when you have people like Musk driving this right we're at the point now where it's almost going to take an elon musk type person
1: to Dude, be he's going to He's going to be the one to get us there because i, I don't doubt it the,
0: with, with the way that the government has continually kept slashing science budgets yeah. right you know, nasa's budget has been continually slashed for years uh other scientific agencies their budgets continually see a decrease in their funding um it's gonna take the marriage between the private sector and the government. It won't just be government driven, right? So you will need a Musk type person and or uh, the the people in the giant corporate world with the Boeings and the Northrop Grummans and those type to also supply some you know of the of the technology to go with this. But it'll happen. Yeah. Uh, you know we we said it at the beginning of this podcast, right? We do things because we can and we're gonna go to Mars at some point. We're gonna set people down on Mars because we can even if we don't terraform it, even if we don't grow potatoes with poop, even if we don't you know whatever, we're gonna do it because we can. and I hope I'm alive to see it. I really Dude, do.
1: We're- I I really think it's going to happen a lot sooner than people think. I really, really do.
0: I I would agree with that. I would tend to
1: agree. But, like, we keep finding stuff, and it's going to keep propelling us. And it's going to get, you know, more people interested in doing it. And it's going to happen. Oh, sure.
0: Sure. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll make this plug while we're at it, all right? This is a call. If, if there's any government legislative people who tune into this podcast, if there are any legislators who tune into this podcast, please, 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 please do not cut science funding and do not cut science agencies, your local um, science museums, things of that nature. Um, so many people learn about science for the first time when they either go to a science museum or a planetarium and actually experiencing space, you know, like your background that you've got there, right? The creation from the Eagle Nebula, Um, the Hubble picture that took that, right? I mean, the, the, the the pictures that the Hubble taken is just jaw dropping. Right? When you look at some of the pictures the Hubble has taken, oh, yeah. it's literally just jaw-dropping. And most people who see those don't end up becoming astronomers. right? They may not become physicists or chemists. But what being exposed to that kind of fascinating science, dinosaurs, right? What kid at some point doesn't go through his phase where they both love space and or dinosaurs
1: at some point? Right. At the same time in my and, case. And a
0: lot of them are at the same time. And I'm still fascinated by dinosaurs.
1: Same dude. I'm I still space fascinated dinosaurs. By I, would dinosaurs.
0: <laughs> I would love cosmic dinosaurs. I would love cosmic dinosaurs.
1: I would too, man. It's out there somewhere in somewhere.
0: In some universe, man. There's
1: universe out there. Still there. And we are rotting. Through the cosmos, <laughs> on the back of space dinosaurs Our that shoot lasers,
0: dinosaur that is shooting lasers out of its eyes. Um, yes. So when when kids interact with intriguing and valuable science at that young age, they see what the night sky looks like in a planetarium, what the night sky actually looks like without all of the light pollution, all of the streetlights. I've been in planetarium shows that that I helped my, you know, advisor uh, or other people perform for school groups. And you can literally hear the gasps for those kids, you know, those second and third graders who this is the first time they're actually seeing what the night sky looks like. Because when they go outside and look, they see the street lamp in their front yard and their neighbors all have their flood lamps on and security lights and you
1: can, it's actually something I like about where I live. There's like zero light pollution. It's amazing. There. No, uh, it's great. And it's there's very little, very little. And you can hear these kids just go,
0: "Wow." Yeah. And and when you do that, when you have kids, especially with that kind of almost transcendental experience that kind it leaves an imprint right it leaves yeah. an imprint and if nothing else it helps them stay interested in science and we need a populace that is interested in science so that we don't have so much disconnect between scientists and the lay public because we're in a really interesting time right now where a lot of people don't trust scientists, even though they respect them, right? They're like, Oh, physicist! Wow. They must really be smart. They must know what they're talking about until a physicist starts talking about climate change. <laughs> and then they're like, Oh, well, you're only a physicist. What do you know about climate? Right? Yeah. So science is just a theory. Right. And, and so when you have a young population that's exposed to what science is and can be fascinated by it and can carry that fascination, if nothing else, they will stay connected to popular science. And when you have a population that's connected to popular science and can understand what science is and differentiate between a theory and a law and differentiate between a theory and nonsense, then you have an educated populace that can make informed decisions at the polls on things like climate change, on things like energy deals, on whatever may be on the ballot, and advocate to their local senators and whatnot for the continuing funding of science, for more funding for NASA, for more funding for the CDC as we're battling COVID, for more funding for whatever the case may be. So I would just say if there's anybody listening to this podcast that it's within their power, keep planetariums open, keep science centers open, keep the funding for these things going. Because to not understand science as an adult in a first world country is to produce a populace that is less educated than what it ought to be. Is science the only thing we need to know about? Sure, not, not, right? We need to be educated as voters on an array of things. But science is one of those things. And if you want to continue to enjoy developments like the iPhone, if you want to continue to enjoy developments like the internet, if you want to continue to enjoy technological advances that can cure cancer, cure COVID, you know, vaccines for new diseases as they come up, uh, vaccines for old diseases that we don't have vaccines for, uh, any number of things, then we need funding for the sciences and we need support from the public to invest in that endeavor as we move forward.
1: Dude, I, th- I definitely think that investing in science and education is probably something that should be in the forefront of a lot of like our government spending, but it's not and it should be
0: not education it the way we do education here in this country baffles me right
1: yeah it it truly
0: baffles me um we want we want you know grade school teachers to essentially perform miracles going back to that word you know miracle uh we're going to continually your funding for your classroom but we're going to give you more kids oh and by the way here's increased state standards you have to meet and all this other kind of stuff and it's like what yeah. What? And if you don't do a good job, then you're going to get fired. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> I mean, what is going on? It, it doesn't make any sense.
1: We've got to figure it figured out somewhere. You're not going to worry
0: about it, man. You're going to be on Mars.
1: Listen, I'm going to be on... Driving around in my cyber truck. <laughs> on the surface of mars seriously dude
0: no I, I really hope it happens in our lifetime i really do i want
1: to see. i it. do too i want to see it so bad like that would be so cool
0: i can't i can't even imagine What it would be, I mean, the only the only other people who would have any sense of what this person, you know, will go through, would be Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, right? The first person yeah. to on Mars. The the only people who could even have any sense of that moment would be those two, you know. But to 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 be the first person to actually set step, step foot on Mars.
1: Uh, on a different planet, not on a moon. A different planet, a different not a moon,
0: but a different planet. Yeah. You know, it takes it takes three days to get to the moon, right? At current, you know, rockets like six years right now. And to get to Mars takes about three months, when mm-hmm. we're, when we're favorably aligned in our orbits, it takes about three months. So, you know, you're you're talking. A factor of what three months is 90 days, so you're talking a factor of you know 30 times longer.
1: Um, it's a lot of time in space,
0: it's a lot of time in space, and that's that's what a lot of the hiccups that we're working through right now are. You know, how do you build those spacecraft? that can carry the the fuel and the people, right? Because sending a, a rover is one thing,
1: yeah, right? Because something some, that's not coming back.
0: Something that's not coming back. Something that has its own internal batteries,
1: right? See, dude, that's why I think we're going to do a colony. I really do. I really think that's going to be... And they're going to build, like... They're going to have everything that they need. They're going to set up a colony, a base, a science you know, laboratory, build their own rocket, and that's how they're going to come back?
0: There's th- That's a possibility. That's a possibility. Um, because, you know, sending a rover, rovers have their own internal batteries, right? And yeah. those batteries are connected to solar cells. And it's all one unit that is, that's your payload. That's all there is. But as soon as you start putting people on there, your complexities of your spacecraft go up exponentially, right? Because as soon as you put people on there, you need a lot more room, number one, because you're not going to keep, you know, multiple people, four or five man crew uh, in a, you know, a, a room the size of the Apollo capsules, right? You're not going to spend 90 days in, in a, you know, 10 by four cube Right? right it's not gonna happen so you need more space you need place for your food you need to pack a
1: lot of food um mm-hmm. maybe you need to a lot food. a lot of food
0: a lot of food you're gonna need to pack exercise equipment you're yeah. now starting to on the spacecraft itself you're increasing your radiation shielding for the amount of time that those people are going to be out in space um you are increasing um your waste disposals, right? So if people need to poop in space, now you need a bathroom on top of everything else. So the complexities of sending a human being versus a robot are immense, right? Now, we've sent people into space. So we have a lot of these problems solved, but it's the cost of the fuel right? The more you need to launch, the more fuel you need, but the more fuel you need, the more massive your rocket becomes. And the more fuel you need to overcome that extra mass. So how, what is the minimum amount that we can launch into space on a reasonable rocket? That's the question that's really being asked. I really believe that we're already at the point where we can put a, a small habitat on Mars. Uh, I, think, I think technologically we're think definitely Mars- there. I think technologically we're there.
1: Yeah.
0: Between, between the advances in our spacesuit technology that they could do Mars walks outside the habitat coupled with heating systems and things like that, I don't think it would be a problem to actually build an inflatable habitat with a few different layers to take into account punctures from micrometeorites and things. I don't think it'd be a problem to do that. I think we could build that habitat really really quickly. My my understanding is that the real obstacles are the actual launch, how much stuff are you actually trying to spend or to send up into space and then how much fuel do you need to send that stuff? Cuz it's going to be far larger than anything we've launched thus far in one launch
1: oh yeah it would be it would be be massive it would would be a massive undertaking it would be a
0: massive undertaking so from where i'm sitting that's one of the bigger challenges is how to get the launch underway in the first place once you're in space you're cruising right once you're in space you're there uh good old newton coming back with his first law right once you're in motion you stay, stay there, in motion. So you don't really need to do a whole lot once you're on the way, once you've broken earth's gravity, you've got on your correct trajectory. There's not a whole lot you have to do until you get to Mars itself. And then you got to burn to slow down. Then you got to burn to get into the atmosphere at just the right point and land and hopefully at your chosen landing site. Um, so, you know, to me, that's where um, the major challenges would be, right? Would be actually launching stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think we actually had one fame question on Twitter.
0: All right, let's let's hear it.
1: Let's see, Nick, can you pull that up, or do you want me to just find it on the? Uh... Yeah, yes, yeah, I think I can do it. Adam Griffith with the loan question. Uh, let's see,
0: Adam Griffith.
1: Yep. I, I do have
0: to ask. Yep. Um, this isn't the former kicker for the Alabama football team, is it?
1: The the one and mm-hmm. the same. <laughs> is this it right here? Yeah.
0: Ask him if time actually
1: exists. had uh, This on conversation about this. Yeah. So
0: actually, this, this actually ties into um, what we were talking about earlier with the second law of thermodynamics. So a lot of physical principles, you can run time forward and backward. And if you were to watch a video, you wouldn't know which was the right way. Right. So for example, imagine you have a billiard table, right? You have a billiard table and one of the billiard balls collides head on with another stationary billiard ball in a perfect head on collision. The first ball comes to a stop and the second ball just keeps rolling. Right. If I were to video this, And I played it forward and in reverse, and you didn't see anything else. You didn't see the cue stick actually hit the ball. You only saw the balls rolling. So you saw one ball collide with the second ball, the second ball move, or you watched the situation in reverse. You would have no way of telling what the actual direction of time was just by watching that event. That's what we call a reversible event, time reversible, but time reversible event. A lot of our laws in physics allow for time symmetry. In other words, if I look at something and play the tape backwards, I wouldn't be able to tell what direction time was actually flowing. A lot of our physical laws have this property built in. It's actually the second law of thermodynamics because systems tend toward an organized system to disorder, a high energy state toward a lower energy state that actually gives time its arrow from a physicist's perspective. It's the second law of thermodynamics that as systems tend toward um, from order toward disorder that actually gives time its arrow because if I run my video backward, I can always tell what direction that process is happening. I can tell if things are getting simpler and more disorganized or if they're getting more complex. So an example of this would be imagine you have a hot cup of coffee, right? Imagine you have a hot cup of coffee and I pour a little bit of creamer in and then I stir the creamer. What happens every single time I stir that creamer? The creamer goes from being a little tiny concentration toward the top, and as I stir it, it then moves to be essentially uniform throughout the coffee. If I watch that video backwards, I will actually see the uniform distribution of creamer coagulate and reconvene at the top in a little tiny clump. We never observe that to happen naturally. You'll never stir a cup of coffee that has creamer in it and stir it to the point where the creamer separates from the coffee. And so that is an example of a specific time dependent event. The fact that um, you cannot run the video backward and the event be symmetric always be able to tell which direction time was actually flowing because you'll always know that time was flowing in the direction of the creamer going from the clump to being uniformly distributed throughout um so does time actually exist yes now there's an even bigger question here and that is what is time
1: that's the nature of our conversation that he and i have like i say since you don't have a full understanding of what time is our explanation of what time is isn't the full like the full thing
0: and and to me the way that i describe time is that we don't exactly know what time is other than it's this thing that seems to flow in a specific direction, but that doesn't really tell you what time is, right? That doesn't, that tells you a characteristic of time that it flows in one direction, but it doesn't tell you what it is. And I liken this to electric charge right? So when you're in elementary school and they say, oh, you know, things have positive charge and these things have negative charge, most kids go, okay, that's fine. This is positive. This is negative. Magnets have a North pole and a South pole. That's fine. That's all you need to know. But then you stop and ask yourself, what is electric charge? What is it about a proton that we can say that it carries this Thing, and we exploit electric charge it's how all of our devices work but we still don't know what the property of charge itself is and I would put time in that same category we know how to use it we know how to put it in our calculations we know how to exploit it but we still don't know what it is right um, are there any
1: course- instances of like, so I know that they found a quote unquote parallel universe where time flows backwards. Like this was a thing. Um, are there like instances of you know like we were talking about in the beginning with um, many worlds? Are there instances of these? but these different worlds or realms where time was in flowing in a different direction or in a different way, um, like how space or astronauts in space um, age slower than people on the earth, that kind of thing.
0: So, so my understanding is no, um, because by all accounts, we, we likely haven't been able to interact with any of the other realms if they exist. Um, but, but I can also say this: so, in in our realm, we know that time has a specific direction. But when you have particles in subatomic interactions. If you have an antiparticle that's created as a result of a collision, right? right, in In the Large Hadron Collider, right? They're colliding protons at really high speeds, close to the speed of light, so on. In those collisions, when you're colliding these different subatomic particles, a byproduct of some of those collisions can be antiparticles. Now, an antiparticle is a particle that has the exact opposite charge of its normal counterpart has the exact same mass as its normal counterpart. And then it also has um, the, uh, it has some symmetric, but opposite um, properties of, um, well, I don't want to get too deep into it, but for example, quarks, uh, Yeah. yeah sorry, quarks of particles that that, uh, make up things like protons and neutrons, right? And they have several properties associated with them. Uh, One of them is called um, strangeness, right? Um, And an antiparticle will have the opposite strangeness of its normal counterpart. But antiparticles seem to flow backward through time. They experience time backward from us. So even though in our realm time seems to flow forward, for these antiparticles time seems to flow backward, and so um, time does seem to be dependent on the properties that you possess in in your subatomic um, constituents, right? Um, okay.
1: Go ahead. I meant you were saying like, would that be like your subatomic state? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, well, not really because the the um. There's another property called charm, right? And and charm is up down, um, top bottom, um. Oh, shoot. Up, down, top, bottom, strange, and um, I forget the sixth one. I'll have to look it up. Um, but those properties, your your mass, your charge, your uh, charm. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Color is, is the property. It's up, down, top, bottom, strange, and charmed. These are what they call the color of quarks up, down, top, bottom, strange and charmed. And um, so your property as a subatomic particle includes your mass, your energy, your. um, Well, I really energy is not a a, your rest energy, I guess I should say, is a better uh, fundamental property that does not change your mass, your rest energy your charge, and your color, um, those are not going to change, even depending on your state. So if you're in like that n equals one or n equals two or n equals whatever, those properties are going to stay the same no matter what. So those don't determine what state you're in in a quantum mechanical sense. Those are your fundamental properties that you possess. Um, And so in that sense... Um, If you're made up of normal matter, then time will flow in one specific direction. If you are made up of antimatter where you have the same mass, but the opposite of all of those things, um, the rest of those things, then you will experience time flowing opposite of us. Our universe, we seem to have a dominance of matter over antimatter, and this is actually a long-standing problem in cosmology. Because if the if the traditional Big Bang theory picture is true, where the universe came into existence from a you know cosmic explosion, um, then that event should have created equal amounts of matter and antimatter. So then the question is, where is all the antimatter,
1: right? That's kind of what his second part is.
0: Yeah. And so then um, are, we get, are we headed for a big crunch um, or not? The data seems to say no, right? So there are really three potential there, – well, there's four, if you really want to think about it. There's four potential fates to the universe. One is a big crunch. So you have the Big Bang. The universe expands what could happen one one thing that could happen is the mutual gravity of all of the stuff in the universe is then strong enough to overcome the expansion and we end up in a big crunch right another potential thing that could happen is what if the big bang had just the right energy where the universe expands and then kind of stops we just hit that balancing point, right? Or what if the Big Bang happens and then the universe just starts expanding uniformly at a constant rate? Or what if the Big Bang happens and then the universe speeds up as it spreads out? Those are the possibilities. Right now, the last one is what seems to be the most yeah. based yes. on the evidence. Um, Yeah. So the, the, the idea of dark energy, right. Um, dark matter and dark energy are terms that we use to describe things that we don't understand. So dark matter is the stuff that seems to be missing the amount of matter that seems to be missing that would hold galaxies together correctly, hold galaxy clusters together correctly. Um, And whatnot but dark energy seems to be the stuff that we can't explain yet where it comes from but there does seem to be some mechanism that's driving galaxies away faster and faster and faster so the the further out we go when we look at distant distant objects and try to estimate their distances and and we also estimate how fast they're moving away from us the further out they are the faster they're moving but that would be true by the way that alone would be true even if we were in a constantly expanding universe right even if we were in a universe that was expanding at a constant rate the further out I would look mm. the faster they would still be moving right So, so if you think about it uh, um, I'm going to reshare my screen here. Um, if you think about it, this would be the case um, if my computer will catch up here. So imagine that we are here. Uh, there we go. Imagine we're here and A next galaxy over is here and the next galaxy over is here. right? And imagine that the universe is expanding uniformly at a constant rate. So we'll call this at time t equals zero. Well, if the universe is expanding at a constant rate, and let's just say that, you know, distance is double, right? So now we'll call this uh, the origin or us, we'll call this galaxy one, we'll call this galaxy two. From our perspective we wouldn't have moved but now if distances have doubled then galaxy one would be here but galaxy two would be all the way out here Mm. right yeah so galaxy one would have doubled its distance but since galaxy two was already twice as far away it would have quadrupled its distance So the further out we look, the faster they're moving away from us. In the same amount of time, this galaxy went from here to here. But in the same amount of time, this galaxy went from here all the way out here, a much larger distance, right? So the further out we look, even in a constantly expanding universe the further out we go the faster they're moving away from us but what the evidence seems to suggest now is that the universe is actually accelerating so these things out here are even further than they ought to be if the universe were expanding at a constant rate they're even further and so um if these measurements hold up now there are a few people that have started to recently dispute this this was initially discovered in 1998, um, but if this holds, right, if, if these measurements hold up, then at least as of right now, we have no mechanism known that would counter this that would then bring, a, bring about a big crunch. So the, the logical conclusion right now is that our universe is just going to continue to expand forever and experience what we would call a heat death where basically things start to get so far apart that they can't interact thermodynamically with each other so then that way when a local part of the universe goes cold all the stars have burnt out there's no more uh, you know hydrogen and helium left over to create new stars there's no heat sources that local part of the universe would essentially become a dead thermo- thermodynamically dead region mm. that seems to be where we're headed
1: That sounds fantastic.
0: It sounds depressing, doesn't it? Yeah. Nothing sounds worse than a heat death.
1: Right. Heat Um, death's pretty
0: bad. Heat death, I mean, it's just boring, right? Like in a few billion years, the observable universe will have shrunk, right? Because these galaxies that are at the far edges of the universe that we can see right now are flying away from us so fast that in another few billion years, they won't even be visible. Because they're going to be flying away from us faster than the speed of light. Yeah. So. Yeah. As the universe gets bigger, our observable universe will actually get smaller.
1: That's, a, that's an interesting thought. That's crazy.
0: But yeah, so, so, so people th- you know, say you know, things cannot travel faster than light if they have mass. That's true. I cannot take a rocket ship and build an engine that can propel that ship up to the speed of light. But but there's no rules on space-time itself. So if space-time itself is the thing that's expanding, and by the logic that the further out an object is, the faster it'll be receding from us, if it's space-time itself that's causing this expansion, then there's nothing that says this galaxy from our perspective, cannot actually be traveling faster than the speed of light at some point. When that galaxy happens, when when that happens for that galaxy, whatever light it was sending our way at that moment will be the last light we get from that galaxy. Once it starts to move faster than the speed of light away from us, we'll never see its light ever again. Hmm.
1: All right, Gary. I think we will call it. As
0: always, guys, it's a pleasure.
1: If I wasn't an old man, I would do this all night. I'm just exhausted. (laughs)
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Once I get to the point, it actually shouldn't be before too long here, that I get free reign over some telescope time um if you guys want to hop in on an observing session or something you know go from uh eight o'clock at night to you know four or five in the morning
1: dude let that me- would be awesome yeah that
0: would be let cool. And we'll you know do some stuff that talk, would
1: be awesome
0: science while we do some actual observations so
1: dude, i love having
0: you on and uh we'll set something up for the future let me know let me know what you guys want to talk about and give me a few weeks notice to prep and we'll we'll do it again Very cool.
1: Thanks, man.
0: All right, guys.